Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Saturday, December 12, 2015. Tonight's program is titled Methods of Interpreting Prophecy, Part 1. It will be a review of Clifton Emmerheiser's article, Roman Catholic Origin of Both Futurism and Preterism. We are going to begin a new endeavor this evening and continue it as we have time interspersed with the other ongoing projects which we have running here on Christogonia Saturdays. We will simply call this series Methods of Interpreting Prophecy. We do not know if it will be two weeks or three or 15, but we will continue this until we feel we have said all the things which are necessary to say. Tonight we shall start the series by presenting Clifton Emmerheiser's Fall 2010 article titled Roman Catholic Origin of Both Futurism and Preterism. Clifton begins by referring to another paper he had written at the time, answering the heresies of a gentleman named Ron Wyatt. We shall present the text of Clifton's paper, add some of our own comments, and also, for this evening at least, add some material from early Christian writers to show, in part, their view of biblical prophecy. And Clifton begins by saying, in my Ron Wyatt, Honest or Deceitful Fraud, paper number three, I presented the historical interpretation of the Mark of the Beast at Revelation 13.18. And there were a few, a few of his readers, evidently, who objected, implying that it had to be something in the future. Biblical prophecy is based on a day equaling a year. A time is 360 years, a month is 30 years, and a day is one year. So if the beast is going to reign 40 and two months at Revelation 13.5, that would amount to 30 times 42, or 1,260 years. Therefore, if the tribulation were to last seven years, starting in 2010, Clifton using an example, that would take us to the year 3270 AD, not seven calendar years. And Clifton is right about this. He's, his explanation is rather terse there, but it is plainly evident in three places in the, in the prophets that very frequently in prophecy, a day should be interpreted as a year in history. The first place is the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and comparing it to the subsequent history of Judea, comparing the words which God actually spoke to Daniel, to the history of Judea, and the actual time of the advent of the Messiah in that 70 weeks prophecy, it is certain that each day in the 70 weeks period represented a calendar year. The second place is in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 4, where the prophet is told 
as an example, thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I, meaning Yahweh, have appointed each day for a year. In this respect, Numbers 14.34 must also be noted with very similar language. The third place is twofold, where we see similar language in Isaiah chapters 34 and 63. And we shall read them both here at once. The first chapter says, For it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Well, is it a day or is it a year? And the second passage says, For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Understanding the construct of Hebrew parallelism, we should see that a day in prophecy, is a year. Once this method of prophetic interpretation is understood, the meaning of many prophecies come to light, even if not every prophecy uses it, but especially where the durations of kingdoms and empires are concerned. So with that, we will continue with Clifton. For some background on this subject, in 1887, Dr. H. Graton Guinness, and he has some alphabet soup out of it after his name, but he's, in, he's a doctor of divinity. English scholar, preacher, lecturer, and writer wrote a work entitled Romanism and the Reformation from the Standpoint of Prophecy. This book was republished in 1967, 80 years later, and within its pages, he dedicated three chapters to pre-Reformation historical interpretation. Before the Reformation, there was no other viewpoint. To impress this upon the minds of his readers, he quoted from scores of writers, historians, and preachers who subjected prophecy to historical analysis for its interpretation. Portions from his works bear repeating for this study. The following excerpt is a quotation from Lecture 5, pages 112 to 113, as they appeared in Old Fashioned Prophecy magazine published in Blackwood, New Jersey. And Guinness goes on to say, with many varieties as to detail, we find there have existed and still exist two great opposite schools of interpretation, the papal or papal and the Protestant or the futurist and the historical. The later regards the prophecies of Daniel, Paul, and John as fully and faithfully setting forth the entire course of Christian history. The former, meaning the papal school, as dealing chiefly with a future fragment of time at its close, much the way the Left Behind books and, and other cartoon books based on based loosely on the Bible do today. Then 
we continue with Clifton. Then Guinness's Romanism and the Reformation on page 114 says, It is held by many that the historic school of interpretation is represented only by a small modern section of the church. We shall show that it has existed from the beginning and includes the greater, the larger part of the greatest and best teachers of the church for 1,800 years. We shall show that the fathers of the church belong to it, that the most learned medieval commentators belong to it, that the confessors, reformers, and martyrs belong to it, and that it has included a vast multitude of erudite expositors of later times. We shall show that all these have held to the central truth that prophecy faithfully mirrors the church's history as a whole, and not merely a commencing or closing fragment of that history. And we would fully agree with Guinness there. And honestly, I could say honestly, in my own life, I only read a couple of interpretations of prophecy from men like Swift and Compare and Howard Rand before embarking on my own endeavors of prophetic interpretation found mainly in, in my minor prophet series and in Christreich and things like that. The, um, what once you're pointed in the direction of the historic interpretation of prophecy, the historicist school of interpreting prophecy, it um, becomes so clear the more history you understand and set alongside the more scripture that you read and prophecy that you read, it's absolutely clear that it's the only valid method of interpreting prophecy, that everything else is just makes a joke of the Bible. That includes futurism and preterism, which we will address at length in this series. We will show here that the early Christian fathers, at least notable early Christian writers amongst them, did indeed belong to the historicist school of the interpretation of prophecy. Even though Clifton, in this paper, he makes the assertion through the, this um, book by Guinness and certain other writers, Clifton himself didn't produce the evidence. We shall produce at least enough of it at the end of this evening. To return to Clifton, he says, then alluding to the pre-Reformation interpreters, Dr. Guinness in Romanism and the Reformation states on the following pages, 123 through 124 in his book, it should be noted that none of the fathers held the futurist gap theory, the theory that the book of Revelation overleaps nearly 18 centuries of Christian history plunging at once into the distant future and devoting itself entirely to predicting the events of the last few years of this dispensation. As to the subject of Antichrist, there is 
there was a universal agreement among them concerning the general idea of the prophecy. While there were differences as to details, these differences arising chiefly from the notion that the Antichrist would in some way be Jewish as well as Roman. It is true, they thought, that the Antichrist would be an individual man, their early position sufficiently accounts for this. They had no conception and could have no conception of the true nature and length of the tremendous apostasy which was to set in upon the Christian church. They were not prophets. They could not foresee that the church was to remain 19 centuries in the wilderness and to pass through prolonged and bitter persecution under a succession of nominally Christian but apostate rulers, filling the place of the ancient Caesars and emulating their anti-Christian deeds. Now, for the most part, this is all very true. I may want to dispute to some degree over what Guinness said about the early perception of the Antichrist, but his portrayal is not entirely inaccurate, as we shall see. Some of the early Christian writers seem to ignore the words of John, where he talked about many Antichrists, but many of the early Christian writers accepted that, but also thought that there was some future um, superhuman antichrist ruler in the future, and we will get into that. So a lot of the early Christian writers had both views of the antichrist. Today's futurists only believe in some future superhuman antichrist. And, and that's, that whole idea is basically ridiculous. The original reformers were historicists, meaning that they understood the words of biblical prophecy to be unfolding as history progressed. It will be shown here. And I don't read the mainstream opinions of these terms, not at all. Futurist, um, partial preterist, historicist, um, preterist. I don't read them. I don't read mainstream books. I don't care about them. But I'm going to give my own ideas as to what they mean or what those terms should mean or what their validity is. The original reformers were historicists, meaning that they understood the words of biblical prophecy to be unfolding as history progressed. It will be shown here that some of the earliest Christian writers were also historicists, but from a much earlier perspective than the reformers. We would assert that this is indeed the only correct view of prophecy as the purpose of prophecy is to indicate historical events in advance so that we know that God is true. Some fools call this view partial preterism, meaning that historic, historicists believe some of the prophecy was fulfilled long ago. We would assert that the phrase 
partial preterism in this sense is ridiculous because the historicist view of prophecy is indeed that part of the prophecy has been fulfilled in history and other parts are being fulfilled currently or more recently and further parts still await fulfillment. That is historicism that the Word of God is gradually unfolding as time progresses. And as it is revealed, we learn that God is true. The term partial preterism is more properly used of the gap theory believers who imagine that much of the prophecy only concerned events which occurred up to 70 AD, but that some of that same prophecy only concerns events far off into the future. And in between, there is a long period of history about which God is silent. So partial preterism really refers to these modern futurists. Even futurists admit that there are great parts of the prophecy which are already fulfilled, mostly concerned with ancient Israel and with the advent of the Christ. So the term partial preterism is actually quite redundant and probably absolutely unnecessary. Futurists recognize that some of the prophecy concerned ancient Israel and the advent of the Christ, but that much of the prophecy, especially in Daniel and the Revelation, concerns surreal and distant events rather than any of the recent past, present, or near future. Now, this is difficult for some people to grasp, but in the historicist view of prophecy, some futurist ideas are necessary because we understand that not all the prophecy is fulfilled, but it is the manner in which those ideas are expressed which separate the futurist from the historicist because prophecy is basically written history in advance, written in poetic and symbolic language. Any valid interpretation is going to necessitate a certain degree of futurist views once it is recognized that at any given point in history, some prophecy is not yet fulfilled. And when it is all fulfilled, this entire discussion will be meaningless. The earlier the historic existence of the commentator, the more futurist the viewpoint must be. A biblical commentator of the second century, who is a historicist, would have more futurist views than a biblical commentator of the 20th century, who is a historicist. So futurist ideas were not entirely new in the time of the Reformation. Rather, there were futurists at an early time, some of whom, for, in, for instance, seemed to be oblivious to the plain language of the epistles of John, and who insisted that the Antichrist was an individual who would appear at some future date while ignoring the Antichrist who were all around them. So in the early Christian writers, popularly called the Ante-Nicene Fathers, 
there is an interesting mix of the historicist view and some semblance of futurism because at the early time, at that early time, it was necessary. While in some of those writers, the futurism may have seemed to be closer to what is seen in today's futurism, in others, such as Irenaeus and Tertullian, the futurism is really only historicism looking forward. Now, that's what separates the people who see some prophecy yet to be fulfilled and the people who are futurists. And that's that gap theory I have not found, as Dr. Guinness has said here, I have not found a one of the ancient Christian writers who believe in a gap theory, that the Word of God is just silent for long periods of time and, and maybe 2,000 years. And that's what they, they claim today. It's 2,500 years. They claim the Word of God is silent for however long. And then all of a sudden, all these prophecies have to do with a couple of years after 2,500-year gap. The gap theory is what's ridiculous. None of the ancients had it. So it must also be said that historicists who realize that some prophecy is not fulfilled are not futurists, just like historicists who realize that much prophecy has been fulfilled are not preterists or partial preterists. These arguments, these labels are only placed, these arguments are only posited by those who wish to cloud the issues. Rather, historicists see the concrete fulfillment of some prophecies in history while they also await the fulfillment of certain other prophecies, looking forward to their historical fulfillment, historical fulfillment in the development of the ongoing reality of everyday life, and not, not in some fanciful and unreal fulfillment where everyday life is transformed into some surreal science fiction scenario. That's the futurist idea. It's not even an idea. It's like a comic book. So futurism, as Clifton regards it in his paper, and also as Guinness regards it in his book, was indeed rather novel at the time of the Reformation. In one aspect, the futurist at the time, refused to acknowledge the fulfillment of prophecy in history that the reformers insisted had been evident in plain sight. And we would have to agree. So the futurists claimed that the prophecies which the reformers esteemed to be fulfilled were not really fulfilled and would not be fulfilled until some very distant date. Continuing with Clifton's paper, the papal origin of futurism. Next, we must investigate why, how, and when. Futurism 
wormed itself into post-Reformation church doctrine. It should be of specific interest when this kind of interpretation of prophecy entered nearly all the schools of prophetic interpretation. In his various writings, Dr. Guinness opens our eyes to the revealing portion of history. Guinness's Romanism and the Reformation says on page 114, we shall show that the future school of interpretation, on the contrary, is chiefly represented by teachers belonging to the Church of Rome, that the popes, cardinals, bishops, and priests of that apostate church are all futurists, and that the futurist interpretation is one of the chief pillars of Romanism. At Guinness's Romanism and the Reformation, page 113, it is stated, the former, or futurist, system of interpreting the prophecies is now held, strange to say, by many Protestants, but it was first invented by the Jesuit Ribera at the end of the 16th century to relieve the papacy from the terrible stigma cast upon it by the Protestant interpretation. Now, in our work on Martin Luther, we've seen that not only did Martin Luther consider the Pope the Antichrist and the Catholic Church organization to be evil, but that that interpretation of Romans and of Daniel had been around for at least 100 to 150 years before Martin Luther, first with the Hussites, but even before them. So that is what the Catholic Church had to combat, and the Jesuit Ribera is the one that came up with the method, the alternative method, which was convenient to the Catholic Church, the alternative interpretation of prophecy when the Jesuits launched the Counter-Reformation which will be mentioned here by Guinness. Speaking of the futurist system, it was first invented by the Jesuit Ribera at the end of the 16th century to relieve the papacy from the terrible stigma cast upon it by the Protestant interpretation. This interpretation was so evidently the true and the intended one that the adherents of the papacy felt its edge must, at any cost, be turned or blunted. If the papacy were the predicted antichrist, as Protestants asserted, there was an end of the question, and separation from it became an imperative duty. Next, from Guinness's Romanism and the Reformation, pages 164 and 165, First, note the fact that Rome's reply to the Reformation in the 16th century included an answer to the prophetic teachings of the Reformers. Through the Jesuits, Ribera and Bellarmine, Rome put forth her futurist interpretation of prophecy. 
Ribera was a Jesuit priest of Salamanca. In 1585, he published a commentary on the Apocalypse, denying the application of the prophecies concerning Antichrist to the existing Church of Rome. He was followed by Cardinal Bellarmine, that may be Bellarmina, a nephew of Pope Marcellus II, who was born in Tuscany in 1542 and died in Rome in 1621. Bellarmine was not only a man of great learning, but the most powerful controversialist in defense of popery that the Roman Church ever produced. Clement VII used these remarkable words on his nomination. We choose him because the Church of God does not possess his equal in learning. Bellarmine, like Rivera, advocated the futurist interpretation of prophecy. He taught that Antichrist would be one particular man. We will see that some of the early Christian writers also believed that. That he would be a Jew. That he would be preceded by the reappearance of the literal Enoch and Elias. And that he would rebuild the Jewish temple at Jerusalem, compel circumcision, abolish the Christian sacraments, abolish every other form of religion, would manifestly and avowedly deny Christ, this sounds like the, the United Nations today, would assume to be Christ and would be received by the Jews as their Messiah, would pretend to be God, would make a literal image speak, literal a literal interpretation of some words from the Revelation, chapter 13, would feign himself dead and rise again and would conquer the whole world, Christian, Mohammedan, and heathen, and all this in the space of three and a half years. Sounds like a Rothschild. He insisted that the prophecies of Daniel, Paul, and John with reference to the Antichrist, had no application whatever to the papal power. As we shall see a little later, not all of these ideas were novel. Some of them were. Irenaeus, the second century Christian writer, also believed that a future Antichrist would rule from the temple in Jerusalem, although at his time, Jerusalem in Palestine lay desolate. The historian Flavius Josephus wrote of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem a hundred years before Irenaeus wrote, and he said that the city was so thoroughly razed to the ground by those that demolished it to its foundations that nothing was left that could ever persuade visitors that it had once been a place of habitation. Evidently, not even the Wailing Wall was left. I don't know how the Jews put it back up. But while not all of Bellarmine's ideas were novel, the way they were imagined to take place was novel. Irenaeus, even though he had some of these opinions, Irenaeus saw the historical development of the prophecy, which we hope to elucidate here, while Bellarmine disconnected it from the historical narrative and even from reality. Continuing with Clifton Emmerheiser, 
From Guinness's Romanism and the Reformation, page 113, there were only two alternatives. If the Antichrist were not a present power, he must either be a past or a future one. Some writers asserted that the predictions pointed back to Nero. This became the preterist view. This did not take into account the obvious fact that the anti-Christian power predicted was to succeed the fall of the Caesars and develop among the Gothic nations. The other alternative, and that's the general historicist interpretation of Daniel chapters 2 and 7 and Revelation chapter 13, and it's the correct interpretation, and develop among the Gothic nations. The other alternative became, therefore, the popular one with papists. Antichrist was future, so Ribera and Bosway and others taught. An individual man was intended, not a dynasty. The duration of his power would not be for twelve and a half centuries, the three and a half times, but only three and a half years. He would be an open foe to Christ, not a false friend. He would be a Jew and sit in the Jewish temple. Speculation about the future took the place of study of the past and present. And careful comparison of the facts of history with the predictions of prophecy. This related, so it was asserted, not to the main course of the history of the church, but only to the few closing years of her history. And there's a... um, a reason why both Irenaeus and Ribera and Bosway could insist that the Antichrist would be a Jew in a Jewish temple. And that reason is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I don't get it, personally. I don't get it from Irenaeus, and I don't understand how even the Jesuits could put this one off. Because anybody who would study the Greek of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 should understand that Paul is speaking in that chapter. All of his verbs are in the past tense or in the present tense. But all of these Christians, all the way back to the days of Irenaeus, interpreted Paul's words to be speaking of the future tense. Even then, they didn't really see that the Antichrist that Paul spoke of, that the Satan that Paul spoke of, were the Jews in the temple. I don't get that. It's so clear to me, reading the Greek of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Paul is speaking in the past and present tenses, all the verbs. There are no future tense verbs in those words of Paul's about the enemies of God sitting in the temple of God and, and, and pretending to be God. There were no future tense words in any of the Greek manuscripts of that passage. I don't get it. They all put it in the future, and and I guess they just didn't understand the nature of the Sadducees. But Paul did. 
As we shall see, Irenaeus also suggested a literal three-and-a-half-year rule of a future Antichrist, but he did not project it into the futurist time frame. That's the big difference. Returning to Clifton, in a different book by Dr. Guinness entitled The Approaching End of the Age, London, Hodder, and Stoughton, published in 1878, page 95, he further enlightens us on the origins of futurism. The third, or futurist view, is that which teaches that the prophetic visions of Revelation from chapters 4 to 19 prefigure events still wholly future and not to take place till just at the close of this dispensation. In its present form, however, it may be said to have originated at the end of the 16th century with the Jesuit Ribera, who moved like Alcazar to relieve the papacy from the terrible stigma cast upon it by the Protestant interpretation tried to do so by referring those prophecies to the distant future instead of, like Alcazar, to the distant past. For a considerable period, this view was confined to Romanists, and it re was refuted by several masterly Protestant works. But of late years, since the commencement of this century, meaning the 19th century, it has sprung up afresh, and sprung up, strange to say, among Protestants. It was revived by such writers as the two Maitlands, Berg, Tyso, Dr. Dodd, the leaders of the Brethren generally, and by some Puseite expositors also, meaning the followers of the English churchman Edward Pusey, who died in 1882. Another noted author and church historian who wrote extensively on prophecy was Leroy Edwin Froome. In his book, The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 2, he sheds some amazing light on the portions on portions of history and Clifton quotes. As to futurism, for some three centuries, this view was virtually confined to Romanists and was refuted by several masterly Protestant works. But early in the 19th century, it sprang forth afresh. This time among Protestants, Samuel Maitland, William Berg, J.H. Todd, and more recently, it has been adopted by most fundamentalists. In 1826, Maitland revived Ribera's futurist interpretation in England. The Plymouth Brethren, organized in 1830 by John Nelson Darby at Dublin and Plymouth, also laid hold of Maitland's interpretation. And when the High Church, Oxford movement, gained ascendancy in Britain, it rejected the Protestant historical school of interpretation and generally adopted futurism though some among them swung to preterism. Bursting into full flame in 1833, it seized upon Maitland's interpretation as an argument in favor of reunion with Rome. German rationalism, on the other hand, increasingly flouted prophecy and prediction, 
Thus, the Jesuit schemes of counter-interpretation were more successful than their authors had ever dared anticipate. And I don't think that any of them would have anticipated zillions of copies of the Left Behind series being sold in Christian nations. They could only drool over that. Then, Joseph Tanner, in his Daniel and a Revelation, page 17, quoted by Leroy Froome, where he expressed the tragedy of modern Protestantism playing into the hands of Romanism, the prophetic faith of our fathers, published in 1948, and Clifton quotes from page 511. It is a matter for deep regret that those who hold and advocate the futurist system at the present day, Protestants as they are for the most part, are thus really playing into the hands of Rome and helping to screen the papacy from detection as the Antichrist. It has been well said that futurism tends to obliterate the brand put by the Holy Spirit upon Popery. More especially is this to be deplored at a time when the papal antichrist seems to be making an aspiring effort to regain his former hold on men's minds. Now, we would equate the papacy with the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, and we would equate the papacy with the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. There are biblical grounds for those equations which are quite substantial. But to consider the papacy or any pope or world leader a capital A antichrist is wrong because it leads people off the track of the true antichrists. The true antichrists are those who deny that Yahshua Christ was the Messiah, Yahweh the Father, manifest in the flesh. The confusion of the beast of Revelation and the little horn of Daniel with a capital A antichrist is a very early one. But it is not the apostles themselves who had made that confusion. To continue with Clifton, in all of this, Guinness, along with others, have enlightened the chronicles of history to reveal the origin of the futurists' plotting. At any rate, Romanism did not regard the futurist interpretation of prophecy adequately enough to lay all questions and objections at rest. Therefore, they had to hatch up another school of interpretation in response to all of those objections while simultaneously removing the papacy from the reformers' disapproval. And he continues by saying, the papal origins of preterism, I wouldn't call it hatched up, I would call it nigger-rigged. That's what it is then, and that's what it is now. It's just as bad as futurism. To place all of these objections and questions to rest, another school of interpretation was spawned. So just why, how, and when did the preterist school of prophetic interpretation enter the picture? Dr. Guinness, in his 
the approaching end of the age responds with thought-provoking questions and observations as follows on page 93. The first, or Preterist scheme, but not Alcazar's brand, considers these prophecies to have been fulfilled in the downfall of the Jewish nation and the old Roman Empire, limiting their range thus to the first six centuries of the Christian era and making Nero the Antichrist. Now, modern preterists in Christian identity evidently take it further than that, limiting their range of the fulfillment of these prophecies in Daniel and the Revelation to the slim period from 32 A.D., give or take a year, however you want to calculate the year of the crucifixion. It's 32 A.D., according to my calculations. From 32 A.D. to 70 A.D., Clifton continues to quote, this scheme originated with, or as he notes, it was rather intensely enlarged by the, Je the Jesuit Alcazar toward the end of the 16th century. It has been held and taught under various modifications by Grotius, Hammond, Bossuet, Eichhorn, and other German commentators, Moses Stewart, and Dr. Davidson. It has few supporters now and need not be described more at length, and we sort of wish Guinness had taken the time to describe it more at length, but that's okay to continue. Dr. Guinness mentions that preterism had few adherents in 1887, yet in his day it was having a resurgence and is the position held by many Protestants of the Reformed faith. Those holding to the Preterist School of Interpretation should give particular attention to Dr. Guinness's comment taken from page 113 of Guinness's Romanism and the Reformation. Some writers asserted that the predictions pointed back to Nero. This did not take into account the obvious fact that the Antichrist power predicted was to succeed the fall of the Caesars and develop among the Gothic nations. And that's very true. The assertion comes from the interpretation of the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, for the most part, and also may have been derived from Revelation chapter 13, where it is also quite clear. We would insist that to a great degree it is correct. Leroy Froome, in his book, The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 2, confirms the foregoing facts of history. Rome's answer to the Protestant Reformation was twofold, although actually conflicting and contradictory. Through the Jesuits, Ribera of Salamanca, Spain, and Bellarmine of Rome, the papacy put forth her futurist interpretation and through Alcazar, Spanish Jesuit of Seville, she advanced almost simultaneously the conflicting preterist interpretation. 
These were designed to meet and overwhelm the historical interpretation of the Protestants, though mutually exclusive, either Jesuit alternatives saluted suited, I'm sorry, either Jesuit alternative suited the great objective equally well, as both thrust aside the application of the prophecies from the existing Church of Rome. The one accomplished it by making prophecy stop altogether short of papal Rome's career. The other achieved it by making it overleap the immense era of papal dominance, crowding Antichrist into a small fragment of time in the still distant future, just before the great consummation. It is consequently, consequently often called the gap theory. Now, I must say that today's preterists, from what I've seen, V.S. Herald, the Christian separatist, is a good example. Today's preterists have somewhat different motivations. For instance, the preterists among identity Christians believe that Christ left the children of Israel to save themselves, and therefore Christians are supposedly in possession of the kingdom, or should take possession of the kingdom themselves, since 70 AD. All biblical prophecy having been fulfilled, we immediately recall the moment in Scripture when the apostles had asked Christ, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? And Christ answered, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Now, if Christ expected the apostles to take the kingdom at the fall of Jerusalem, why didn't he just say, When you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies? Today's preterists are just as dishonest with prophecy as the medieval Romanists were. Returning to Clifton, concerning the two alternatives presented by Ribera and Alcazar, consigning Antichrist either to the remote past or future, Joseph Tanner, the Protestant writer, gives this record. Accordingly, during the close of the century of the Reformation, two of her most learned Doctors set themselves to the task, each endeavoring by different means to accomplish the same end, namely, that of diverting men's minds from perceiving the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Antichrist in the papal system. The Jesuit Alcazar devoted himself to bring into prominence the preterist method of interpretation, which we had already briefly noticed and thus endeavored to show that the prophecies of Antichrist were fulfilled before the popes ever ruled at Rome and therefore could not be applied to the papacy. On the other hand, the Jesuit Ribera tried to set aside the application of these prophecies to the papal power by bringing out the futurist system which asserts that these prophecies refer properly not to the career of the papacy, but to that of some future supernatural individual who is yet to appear and to continue in power for three and a half years. 
Thus, as Alford says, the Jesuit Ribera, about A.D. 1580, may be regarded as the founder of the futurist system in modern times. He's not saying that some of the ideas didn't exist before Ribera, and the same thing with Alcazar. He admits that some of the ideas Alcazar promulgated had existed before him. This may be true, in spite of the fact that Irenaeus had many of the same ideas at a much earlier time than Ribera. Ribera had developed them in a much different fashion than Irenaeus had held them. Back to Clifton. Next, we witnessed Joseph Tanner in his Daniel and the Revelation, published by Hotter and Stoughton in London in 1898 on pages 16 and 17, as he is quoted in turn by the Reverend E.D. Eliot in the Hore Apocalypse, or A Commentary on the Apocalypse, published in 1862, as quoted in turn by Edwin L. Froome in the Prophetic Faith About Fathers, published in 1948, E.B. Eliot states precisely the same fact, only assigning slightly different dates, and many others, such as Dr. Candish of Edinburgh, also support the charges. The fact is established. Reverend E.B. Eliot, quoted by Froome in the preceding paragraph, is that great English scholar from Cambridge University. In his four-volume literary masterpiece, Hore Apocalypse, or A Commentary on the Apocalypse, Critical and Historical, Eliot supports the evidence thus far that both preterist and futurist interpretations of prophecy originated with Rome. It was stated at the conclusion of my sketch of the history of apocalyptic interpretation that there are at present two, and but two, grand general counter-schemes to what, to what may be called the historic Protestant view of the apocalypse, that view which regards the prophecy as a prefiguration of great events that were to happen in the church and the world connected with it, from St. John's time to the consummation, including, especially, the establishment of the popedom and reign of papal Rome, as in some way or other, the fulfillment of the types of the apocalyptic beast and Babylon. The first of these two counter-schemes is the preterists, which would have the prophecy stop altogether short of the popedom, explaining it of the catastrophes, one or both, of the Jewish nation and pagan Rome, and of which there are two sufficiently distinct varieties. The second, the futurists, which in its original form would have it all shoot over the head of the popedom into times yet future. 
Clifton says that what all of this boils down to is that there are a lot of well-meaning Christians unwittingly going around today spouting the twisted doctrines of the Jesuit Ribera or the Jesuit Alcazar, thinking they are doing God a favor while interpreting prophecy, and nothing could be further from the truth. It should also be pointed out here that, by and large, most of the Jesuits were Kenite, Edomite, Canaanite Jews, or the spawn of Satan from Genesis 3.15. Now, we would agree with that to some degree. To repeat any Tommy Rot from such sources without first confirming them is tantamount to following Satan's agenda. Later on, a lot of non-Jews joined up with the Jesuits, but the early Jesuits were heavily a Jewish group. With the quotations used, I'm sorry, a crypto-Jewish group, excuse me. With the quotations used in this paper, you will notice that I have placed the rubbish of the Jesuit Ribera and the Jesuit Alcazar in their proper categories. One will have to pardon those in nominal churchianity, as their ancestors during the Middle Ages didn't have access to Holy Writ. But today, we in Israel identity don't have any excuse. Therefore, the Israel identity Christian should be following only the historical school of biblical prophetic interpretation. I would urge each person reading this essay to examine all of the data here presented to determine whether these sources are valid or not, it would be irrational to take a position one way or the other without doing so, meaning go check it for yourself. It might be argued that the sentiments of Guinness, Tanner, Eliot, and Froome, along with others, were simply anti-Catholic vilification and have no historical accuracy. On the other hand, Roman Catholics, as well as Protestants, harmonize in many cases of origin and interpretation, as the Roman Catholic writer G.S. Hitchcock demonstrates in his book, The Beast and the Little Horn, published in London in 1911 by the Catholic Truth Society publication. And on page 7, he says, The Futurist School founded by the Jesuit Ribera in 1591, looks for Antichrist, Babylon, and a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem at the end of the Christian dispensation. The Preterist school, founded by the Jesuit Alcazar in 1614, explains the revelation by the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or by the fall of pagan Rome in 410 AD. So the cry of anti-Catholic, when one points out that futurism and preterism were invented and promoted by the Jesuits in the Romish church, simply doesn't wash. There is no room for either futurism or preterism. And that's the end of our presentation of Clifton's paper, but we have some few comments left. <clears throat> now it is evident as we shall see, that many of the ideas of the futurists have been around for 1,800 years. But so far as I can tell, in 
anything that I've read, the idea of preterism was not found among any of the early Christian writers. Now, I know they had a lot of bad ideas that they can't accept, but they had a lot of good ideas that were wholly Christian. There were no early Christian writers who thought that all prophecy was fulfilled by the advent of Christ or by the fall of Jerusalem. But there were indeed early Christian writers who imagined that prophecy was continuing to unfold in history. I thought that one quick way to search for material on this topic in the early Christian writers was in the Logos Bible Study Program by searching the available references for the term Antichrist. So that is what I did, and I was not disappointed. I am going to present the views of a few of those writers to show what they thought of this term, and their understanding of the term will also reveal a lot of their opinion of prophecy. First, and very briefly, we have two citations from Ignatius of Antioch, and he's not really getting into prophetic interpretation here, but he does demonstrate the earliest extant understanding of the term Antichrist in non-apostolic Christian church writers. Ignatius of Antioch is believed to have died about 110 A.D., some sources date his death a little later. From the Epistle of Ignatius to Hero, a deacon of Antioch, or a minister, right, a diaconus, if anyone denies the cross and is ashamed of the passion, let him be to thee as the adversary himself, as Satan, right? Though he gives all his goods to feed the poor, though he remove mountains, though he give his body to be burned. This is Paul, right? This, he's quoting Paul of Tarsus. Let him be regarded by thee as abominable. If anyone makes light of the law or the prophets, which Christ fulfilled at his coming, let him be to thee as antichrist. If anyone says that, the Lord is a mere man. He is a Jew, a murderer of Christ. And the epistle of Ignatius to the Antiochians. Whosoever, therefore, declares that there is but one God, only so as to take away the divinity of Christ, is a devil and an enemy of all righteousness. He also that confesses Christ, yet not as the son of the maker of the world, but of some other unknown being different from him whom the law and the prophets have proclaimed, this man is an instrument of the devil, and he that rejects the incarnation and is ashamed of the cross for which I am in bonds. This man is antichrist. Moreover, he who affirms Christ to be a mere man is accursed according to the declaration of the prophet, since he puts his trust not in not in God, but in man. Wherefore also he is unfruitful, like the wild 
myrtle tree. So Ignatius certainly believed that Yahshua Christ was God. He said, therefore, whoever declares that there is but one God only so as to take away the divinity of Christ. That was the argument that the Jews made, that if God was a spirit in heaven, God could not be a man on earth. And the Jews, the early Jews, and they still do today, accuse Christians of being idolaters for that reason. So that's what Ignatius, the earliest extant non-apostolic Christian writer, thought of the Antichrist, the term that a man could be an Antichrist if he denied the Christ. That's just like the Apostle John taught in 1 John and 2 John, in those two epistles. The next is Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lugdunum in Gaul. Irenaeus died around 202 A.D., he must have lived into his 70s, possibly his 80s. From Irenaeus's Against Heresies, Book 5, Chapter 25, speaking of the second beast in the revelation of Jesus Christ. This chapter is subtitled, The Fraud, Pride, and Tyrannical Kingdom of Antichrist, as described by Daniel and Paul. And Irenaeus says... And not only by the particulars already mentioned, but also by the means of the events which shall occur in the time of Antichrist, it is shown that he, being an apostate and a robber, is anxious to be adored as God, and that, although a mere slave, he wishes himself to be proclaimed as a king. For he, Antichrist, being endued with all the power of the devil, shall come, not as a righteous king, nor as a legitimate king, in subjection to God, but an impious, unjust, and lawless one, as an apostate, iniquitous, and murderous, as a robber, concentrating in himself all satanic apostasy and setting aside idols to persuade men that he himself is God, raising up himself as the only idol, having in himself the multifarious errors of the other idols. This he does in order that they who do now worship the devil by means of many abominations may serve himself by this one idol, of whom the apostle thus speaks in the second epistle to the Thessalonians. So we see that Irenaeus saw 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as being in the future, which I can't understand from reading the Greek. Unless there shall come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. Perhaps some of these early Christian writers had manuscripts with different forms of the verbs. Perhaps there was some corruption from one language into another. I don't know if Irenaeus read Greek or Latin. I really don't know. The apostle, therefore, Irenaeus says, clearly points out his apostasy, that he is lifted up above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, that is, above every idol. For these are indeed so-called by men, but are not really gods. And 
that he will endeavor in a tyrannical manner to set himself forth as God. So Irenaeus saw a singular Antichrist who would manifest in history as a wicked king or a wicked ruler. And we will go on to Book 5, Chapter 30 of Against Heresies, where he is speaking of the second beast in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Further on in that same book, actually. But he indicates the number of the name now, that when this man comes, we may avoid him, being aware who he is. So we see this Antichrist as a man who's coming to be a ruler in the real world, not 2,000 years in the future, or three or four. The name, however, is suppressed because it is not worthy of being proclaimed by the Holy Spirit. For if it had been declared by him, he, Antichrist, might perhaps continue for a long period. But now he was and is not and shall ascend out of the abyss and goes into perdition as one who has no existence, so neither has his name been declared. For the name of that which does not exist is not proclaimed. But when this Antichrist shall have devastated all the things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. This is Irenaeus. This is maybe 180, 170 AD, 190 AD when he's writing this. He will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in to the righteous the times of the kingdom, that is, the rest, the hallowed seventh day, and restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance, in which kingdom the Lord declared that many coming from the east and from the west would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Irenaeus believed that a historical king would rise to be the Antichrist, that he would be a mean man, that he wouldn't be noble, that he would be ignoble, and that he would rule from the temple in Jerusalem for three and a half literal years. And that when he was destroyed, it would usher in the great seventh day. And that's an allusion to Paul's words in Hebrews that the children of Israel in Joshua's time were not permitted into the rest, the rest day, the Sabbath of Yahweh, but that we would be as Christians. That's Paul in Hebrews. So Irenaeus gets a lot of his eschatology from Paul and from Daniel and from the Revelation. He saw the Antichrist, as Paul described, the present Satan in Jerusalem. And Irenaeus projected that into a historical future. That is a mystery to me because... In all of the copies, as I have already said, of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we have extant today, which I've ever seen, and I've read them all, all the ones I could get, the, um, the words of Paul are all in the 
past and present tense. They're not in the future. So that's a mystery to me that I pray I will um, learn the reasons behind sometime in the future. From Irenaeus, book 3, chapter 16 of Against Heresies, discussing the nature of Christ, he says, For this reason, also, he has thus testified to us in his epistle, he's speaking of the Apostle John. Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard that Antichrist does come, now have many Antichrists appeared, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they departed that they might be made manifest that they are not of us. Know ye therefore that every lie is from without and is not of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist. So even though... Irenaeus, like other early Christians, took that Antichrist label from John, applied it to the beast of Revelation, applied it to the little horn of Daniel 7, applied it to the Satan of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and imagined it to be a single future ruler who would rule for three and a half years. Even though Irenaeus did that, nevertheless, he understood the term Antichrist the way the Apostle John, who was the only one that used it in Scripture, had originally used it to refer to all of those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. So Irenaeus used the term both ways. Later on in the same chapter, Irenaeus says, their doctrinal homicide, conjuring up as it does a number of gods and stimulating many fathers, but lowering and dividing the Son of God in many ways. These are they against whom the Lord has cautioned us beforehand, and his disciple in his epistle already mentioned, meaning the first epistle of John commands us to avoid them when he says, for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Take heed to them that you lose not what you have wrought. And again, does he say in the epistle, many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which separates Jesus Christ is not of God, but is of Antichrist. These words agree with what was said in the Gospel, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Wherefore, he again exclaims in the, in the epistle, Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, knowing Jesus Christ to be one and the same, to whom the gates of heaven were opened because of his taking upon him flesh, who shall also come in the same flesh which he suffered, revealing the glory of the Father. So Irenaeus seemed to be divided. He understood the application of the word Antichrist as it was employed by the Apostle John to mean those people walking around who denied that Jesus was the Christ. But he did, in fact, await a future 
capital A Antichrist, a ruler with supernatural demonic powers. Now to hear from Tertullian on the matter. On the matter. Tertullian was almost as ancient as Irenaeus. He was a Christian apologist from Carthage who died around 240 AD. He was writing from the late first century through the, I'm sorry, second century until the almost the middle of the third century. From Tertullian's The Prescription Against Heretics, chapter four. Who are the ravening wolves but those deceitful senses and spirits which are lurking within to waste the flock of Christ? Who are the false prophets but the deceptive predictors of the future? Who are the false apostles but the preachers of the spurious gospel? Who also are the antichrists both now and evermore but the men who rebel against Christ? Heresies at the present time will no less rend the church by their perversion of doctrine than will Antichrist persecute her at that day by the cruelty of his attacks, except that persecution makes seven martyrs, but heresy only apostates. So Tertullian understood the word Antichrist the way that the Apostle John had taught it who also are the antichrists, both now and evermore, but men who rebel against Christ. And then he talks about antichrist who will persecute the church at that day. And that seems to refer to a person, but may also be used collectively, or may be one person who represents that particular group. From Tertullian's On the Resurrection of the Flesh, chapter 24, again, in the second epistle, he addresses them with even greater earnestness. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled, either by spirit or by word, that is, the word of false prophets, or by letter, that is, the letter of false prophets. He's quoting Paul, of course. As if from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come unless, and he's quoting 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, unless indeed there first come a falling away. He means, indeed, of his present empire, speaking of the Roman Empire, and that man of sin be revealed. That is to say, Antichrist, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or religion, so that he sits in the temple of God, affirming that he is God. Remember you not that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what detaineth, that it might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work, only he now who hinders must hinder until he be taken out of the way. All quoting from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the way Tertullian and whoever translated this Latin into English for us had understood the words to mean. What obstacle is there 
Tertullian says. But the Roman state, the falling away of which, being scattered into ten kingdoms, this is Daniel chapter 7, shall introduce Antichrist upon its own ruins. That's the little horn of Daniel 7 and the second beast of Revelation 13. And then shall be revealed the wicked one. And this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs, and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. The reformers must have loved Tertullian if they actually read him. I don't know if they had access to him. Because it could be said that the papacy had indeed been established upon the ruins of ancient Rome. So we see Tertullian display the understanding that men among the people of his own time were antichrists. But we also see Tertullian look forward to an Antichrist developing out of historic circumstances. And even if it did not happen exactly as Tertullian imagined, that a second coming of Christ would occur after the fall of Rome, this is remarkable since Tertullian was writing this around 200 A.D over 200 years before Rome actually fell, Tertullian understood that the scripture predicted the fall of Rome. But Irenaeus also, who wrote a couple of decades before Tertullian in Book 5, Chapter 26 of his Against Heresies, displayed the historicist understanding of interpreting prophecy, where he spoke of the ten horns of Daniel, and he said, in, still, in a still clearer light has John, in the Apocalypse, indicated to the Lord's disciples what shall happen in the last times, and concerning the ten kings who shall then arise, among whom the empire which now rules shall be partitioned. Irenaeus understood the passages much the same way as Tertullian did. They were two generations and <laughs> several hundred miles apart. He teaches us what the ten horns shall be, which were seen by Daniel, telling us that thus it had been said to him, taking the revelation of John and referring it back to Daniel chapter 7. Next is Origen, the Christian theologian from Alexandria and a student of Clement of Alexandria, who probably died a few years after Tertullian, around 254 AD. It must be noted that Origen was often in contradiction not only to other Christian writers, but especially to the apostles. And that's something that always must be considered with all of these early Christian writers. They didn't agree with each other. They disagreed with each other very often. And some of them disagreed with the apostles more frequently than others. 
From Origins Against Celsus, Book 6, Chapter 45. But since Celsus rejects the statements concerning Antichrist, as it is termed, having neither read what is said of him in the book of Daniel, imagining the little horn to be the Antichrist's, the little horn of Daniel, Chapter 7, nor in the writings of Paul, which must be a reference to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, nor what the Savior in the Gospels has predicted about his coming. We must make a few remarks upon this subject also, because as faces do not resemble faces, so also neither do men's hearts resemble one another, for far surpassing the help which these demons give to jugglers who deceive men for the basest of purposes is the aid which the devil himself affords in order to deceive the human race. Paul indeed speaks of him who is called Antichrist, describing, though with a certain reserve, both the manner and time and cause of his coming to the human race, and notice whether his language on his subject is not most becoming and undeserving of being treated with even the slightest degree of ridicule. And that's all we're going to quote from that passage. We only quoted enough to show that Origen, too, believed in this future ruler, Antichrist, interpreting Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 in much the same way that Tertullian and Irenaeus had. From chapter 79 of the same book, Origins Against Celsus, book 6, but if anyone desires to see many bodies filled with the divine spirit, similar to the one Christ, ministering to the salvation of men everywhere, let him take note of those who teach the gospel of Jesus in all lands, in soundness of doctrine and uprightness of life, and who are themselves termed Christ's, by the Holy Scriptures, in the passage, touch not mine anointed, and do not my prophets any harm. For as we have heard that Antichrist cometh, and yet have learned that there are many Antichrists in the world, in that same way, knowing that Christ has come, we see that, owing to him, there are many Christs in the world, who like him have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And therefore God, the God of Christ, anointed them all with the oil of gladness. And here in chapter 79 of this book of the writing of Origen, we see a semblance of some of the very things about people which we today profess in our own scriptural commentaries, namely that there are two types of people in the world, the anointed people, small c Christs, and the enemies of Christ, small a antichrists. Origen labeled them the same way, even if he did not divide them along proper racial lines. While I cannot fully substantiate this opinion as of yet, it nevertheless seems to me that in the third and fourth centuries, the attitudes may have been changing. The plural antichrists, who denied the Christ and rejected his doctrine, seem to have fallen out of the dialogue at some point, or at least I couldn't find any examples of it later on. 
And the future Antichrist with supernatural ability seems to have grabbed all the focus. From Alexander's epistles on the Arian heresy, Alexander was a bishop of Alexandria from 313 to 326 AD. Since the body of the Catholic Church is one and is commanded in Holy Scripture, now there was no hegemony of the Bishop of Rome at this time. They envisioned the churches to be united in the body of Christ, even though all of the bishoprics were independent. Since the body of the Catholic Church is one, and it is commanded in Holy Scripture that we should keep the bond of unanimity and peace, it follows that we should write and signify to one another the things which are done by each of us, that whether one member suffer or rejoice, we may all either suffer or rejoice with one another. In our diocese, then, not so long ago, there have gone forth lawless men and adversaries of Christ, teaching men to apostatize, which thing, with good right, one might suspect of the, and call the precursor of Antichrist. Now, what's telling there is that Alexander would not consider the wicked men to be Antichrists themselves, but he only said that one may suspect them to be a precursor of the singular Antichrist, contrary to the words of the Apostle John. From the late 3rd century, Malchion, from the Acts of the Disputation with the Hesiarch Manes, for we have been instructed beforehand with regard to you, we have both been warned and armed against you by the Holy Scriptures. You are a vessel of Antichrist and no vessel of honor. In suit, but a mean and base one, used by him as any barbarian or tyrant may do, who in attempting to make an inroad on a people living under the righteousness of the laws, sends some select vessel on beforehand, as it were destined to death, with the view of finding out of the exact magnitude and character of the strength possessed by the legitimate king and his nation. For the man is too much afraid to make the inroad himself wholly at unawares, and he also lacks the daring to dispatch any person belonging to his own immediate circle on such a task through fear that he may sustain some harm. And so it is that your king, Antichrist, has dispatched you in a similar character, as it were destined to death, to us who are a people placed under the administration of the good and holy king. So like Alexander, Malchion seems reluctant to apply the Antichrist label to man, but only to one particular individual who seems to be considered supernaturally and not in real history. But the original, earlier Christian writers certainly saw the Antichrist as a ruler who would arise from historical circumstances. And Tertullian and Irenaeus both seem to have pegged that to a time when the current Roman Empire, current in their time, would fall.
and that was the rise of the papacy. But we wouldn't call him the Antichrist. We would call it the second beast of the Revelation. An interesting perspective is found in the writings of Victorinus, who died around 304 AD, in his commentary on the Apocalypse of the Blessed John from the 13th chapter, the 13th chapter of the Revelation. And he says it, verse 1, And I saw a beast rising up from the sea, like unto a leopard. This signifies the kingdom of that time of Antichrist, and the people mingled with the variety of nations. So he was on the right track, even though he didn't have the correct application. His feet were as the feet of a bear, a strong and most unclean beast. The feet are to be understood as his leaders, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. That is, his mouth armed for blood is his bidding, and a tongue which will proceed to nothing else than to the shedding of blood. His number is the name of a man, and his number is 600, three score, and six. And we did not quote the rest of the commentary, but only wanted to display that he was certainly talking about Revelation chapter 13, and he was sort of confounding the two beasts together. As a note, I have never seen more confusion on the topic of Antichrist than what can be read in the treatise of Christ and Antichrist from the extant works of Hippolytus, found in the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Volume 5. I won't repeat them here, but thought it merited a mention, because perhaps one day we can treat this topic more fully, and we probably should at some point. <laughs> However, what is important here, and which is especially evident in the words of Tertullian, is that we see the belief in a historical Antichrist who would come to rule by earthly means at some time which was still in the future relative to these early Christian writers. But many of them, especially the earliest of them, also understood that many men who lived in their time were also Antichrists. It is clear that Tertullian's understanding was that the kingdom of the Antichrist would arise from the ashes of Rome after the fall of Rome. But even in the writings of the others, we see that they professed a historical unfolding of prophecy. That's what's important here. Whether they're right or wrong, whether they're exact or not, doesn't matter. These men, these earliest Christian writers, professed a historical unfolding of prophecy, and that a good deal of it was yet perceived to be in their future. Futurism denies futurism denies the fulfillment of prophecy as history progresses and delays it far into the future we may want to to want to refer to it instead as procrastinationism futurism is really procrastinationism the belief that the word of god is never really going to actually happen. Preterism is unknown in any of the early Christian writers. We want to refer to it instead as 
obfuscationism because it makes the word of God unintelligible and therefore it denies his role in the guidance of man. It denies God his hand in history. Preterism is really humanism. It is the persuasion that man, Jesus did what he could do for us. Now man can save himself because prophecy is complete and Yahweh no longer has any real efficacy in the world. Now preterism, white nationalist preterism, is a cool-sounding humanism that resonates with nationalist-minded whites. But it boils down to the mistaken belief that man should be his own Messiah. And that's just not going to happen. Preterism denies the efficacy of the word of God in the world. And futurism does too, for the most part. It just keeps putting it off. That is the conclusion to this first part of our methods of interpreting prophecy. I don't know when the second part's going to be. It may simply be as necessary, but there will be at least one more portion. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Mm-hmm.